Voice Nation. Greetings and happy Thanksgiving from Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics, bringing you a veritable cornucopia. See how I brought that all together there? A veritable cornucopia of titanium treasures. This is Kevin Brown, your virtual ASR, and I hope you are having a great day. I know I certainly am. It's going to be a great day. Hang around for it. We're going to talk with Dr. Sean McMillan. Chief of Orthopedics, Director of Orthopedic Sports Medicine and Arthroscopy up at Professional Orthopedics in Burlington, New Jersey. Great conversation, great surgeon, and a friend of Device Nation. So let's talk turkey. I finally ran into a nurse that admitted that many years back she cooked, not warmed, cooked a turkey in the autoclave. I have thought about this concept for years. Three-minute flash, no drive time, and a gravity displacement gobbler is served up piping hot. You know that steam just seals in the natural juices. Well, I've gone vegetarian, not strict vegetarian. I still eat beef, pork, chicken, and fish, and I can literally... Just skip that bird and go for the sides. Just give me one of those OR plastic basins that get tossed and fill it with sweet potato casserole. Do not ruin it with marshmallows, people. And that pineapple cheese Ritz cracker casserole, whatever that's called. And a big spoon, and I am done. Well, speaking of done, am I the only one that discovers after the turkey is done I forgot to take the giblets out. This year, I concluded I'm subconsciously doing that on purpose, as when I was a kid watching my favorite show, The Three Stooges, you didn't see that one coming, I'm sure, I distinctly remember Curly stuffing a turkey with all sorts of nonsense, cans of peas, still in the can, of course, oysters still in the shell, and pushing it all in by hand up to his shoulder. And to this day, I think my mind just shuts that whole process down. We are not going into that hole. It's too dark. It's too deep. And to make things exponentially worse, it's too moist. Well, maybe if I had one of those back scratchers off the Moreland set and a lighted retractor, maybe... Just maybe. Well, what a segue as we're going through our Deep and Wide series, not about the cavernous interior of a butterball, but about the value proposition of being deep in the midst of change and medical device. And Wide, bringing products into your bag to offer some financial protection from these buffeting winds many of us are experiencing. So to that end, we have turned the Device Nation microphone around and have sought out thoughts on this very subject from people I respect greatly, not only professionally, but personally. So without any further ado, welcome to the show, Skylar. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Really appreciate you coming on, sir. We're talking about the Deep and Wide series. Tell me a little bit about yourself, sir. How long have you been doing this medical device job? started out as a uh, neuromonitor for the sponsors I worked for almost a little over seven years ago, seven and a half years ago. Been with him ever since he's been in Gadsden, Alabama. He made me into his rep uh, about a year and a half, two years later. So a little over seven years that I've been um, in medical device, and I get to wake up and work in spine, and I love every day of it. Well, that's a vote of confidence when they groom you as their rep. That's great stuff. It's been a, a wonderful experience. First Miss taught me a lot, and um, I've, I've 
I know, I know I've only been able to soak up about a quarter of what he's told me. And, and, but every day I'm, I'm trying to pull in a little more, wake up every day with a, with a uh, thirst for knowledge. Well, the whole concept behind this series, sir, is just the value of being in deep on four major sectors in our field. Uh, D for doctors, E for employees of the hospital, the other E for employees of the companies we work with, and lastly, peers. Uh, Before we get into each one, any overview thoughts of why that's even important? Absolutely. You know, I think the last time we talked, we went pretty deep into this. Uh, I, I think that the game is changing for reps. You know, you have some folks that think that reps they shouldn't exist and i think that it's actually the exact opposite i think nobody knows our product more than we do we we invest our time and our skills to make that such what we also have to do it was very intriguing when you brought up deep to me i I dove into it awfully hard and and what we have to do is dig our claws in to where we're such a valued member uh, of the of the team that we're indisposable well, let's break that down a little bit, sir. Uh, let's start with our D, doctors. What does that mean practically to you on a day-in, day-out basis? The doctor put me in this position. He put me in there for a reason. He saw my work ethic, and that's and that's the what I feel got me into uh, what I'm doing now. You know, understanding the needs of what the surgeon is looking for and, uh, you know, how you can assist those needs. It's not just about standing there and, you know, pointing at, at screws or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you're representing. It, it's it's being being needed. And if you're not there, is the day going to go right? That's that's what you want to know. I think that's I think that's the most important thing. It's it, you're becoming a valued member of the OR, making the surgeon's job where it comes in and he has to do surgery and he don't have to worry. Is the positioning right? Is the room right? Are all the necessary tools for the job there? You know, he knows that when you're in the room, he's in the room, and everything that he has is at his fingertips. Meeting his needs without having to be told, you know, what's what's expected of you. I remember when I first started this, I would watch the guys, and I, I would wonder how they how they got to where they were. What was so special about them? And, and I continued to watch, and it really... And I'm not downplaying these guys, but there was nothing special about what they did. They brought in sets. They showed the sets. When it was their time to come in for their uh, for their implants, then they were there. And then when their implants were done, they were the first ones out. And the way I looked at it was I should be the first one there. I should be the last one to leave. And I should meet every little need in between. So let's expand on that a little bit, sir. Uh, the staff in that room. There's people in purchasing. Uh, there's there's a lot of employees in that hospital that we interact with. Uh, how do you see yourself bringing value to that side of the equation? Often reps, distributors, whatever you may be, you are a hospital's worst nightmare because you are adding to their day. You are adding to their expense. You are you are adding to the stretch levels. And so what we want to do is stop that, right? We don't want to go in and constantly think about, you know, making or creating sales and that being the basis of our relationships. When I walk into a hospital, the hospital that I work at, um, when I walk in there, I want them to see me as, oh, we don't have, hey, we're good to go, scholars here. That's important to me. I want them to look at me uh, in the way that the surgeon I work for looks, looks at me. That guy is going to come in here. He's going to help. He's different. I'm not 
one that there I want them to be with other reps. Oh, you should be like I don't want them, I don't want anybody to be like that. But I want to be different from other reps that come in there because if I set my footprint and it's deep enough with the employees, well, that just digs me deeper with the surgeon. That just helps my that helps my relationship with him. You know, most people they're worried about now, paid now. What you do today is going to reflect tomorrow. You you can either, you know, get it today and be gone tomorrow, or you can dig in today and it's going to pay off in the future. And that's what you're looking to do. You know, oftentimes we go in, we get an eye roll. Ah, uh, he's here. We don't, we don't want to be that guy. When I go in there, uh, I want those people to know that I'm, I'm there for them. I'm, I'm here to assist. I don't want them to associate me with, uh, he's just in here wanting me to want me to look at something new or he's just want to do an in-service for somebody. I, that's not what I want. I, when I walk in, I want them to know that I'm there for them. Uh, I'm here to make your day go smoother. Whatever I can do to help point me in the right direction and, and let me go. You mentioned going in and, and talking with the supply chain. Those folks are, they're, they're just like the nurses. They don't want to see you just for a sale. They want to know that you're there to help them. They want to know that you're there to, to make their job easier when it comes to cost or, or um, easier when it comes to obtaining certain things. And, and that's what you want to do. I live on the line of I'm there. Everybody in that hospital knows what I do. They know what I have. And I don't have to press on that. You know, every once in a while, I may ask about, well, what are you doing for X product? Um, and then I give them a chance to, to open a door for me. Nine times out of ten, uh, the way I am right now is they'll say, hey, look, we're looking for this. Can't find it. Can you get it for us? My answer is always yes. Well, let's look at employees of these companies that we represent. You know, we, we talk with them on the phone. We interact with them. Uh, we rep their product to the best of our ability. And, and I was just curious as to what your thoughts are on that interaction. When I, when I started this, I started with one company. That spine company has been just as loyal to me as I have to it. I have other lines. The reason I have those other lines is because this company doesn't have those products. I could chase the dollar just as, as good as anybody else. And I can go to other companies and pull in different products. But you know what comes with change oftentimes? Trouble. You get in there and, and you swap a screw or you swap a, a MIS set, a, you know, a minimally invasive set. You're used to having one thing and now you have another and, and you might have overlooked something that just isn't there. And it might be of vital importance. And I think that that shows a huge value to who you are and what you're doing. Because in our business, loyalty isn't exactly the, the mantra. We're oftentimes fighting with each other so much and, and fighting to, to make as much as possible that we, we overstep into areas that we really don't want to be. We just don't know it yet. Let's talk about peers for a second. Skylar, I've seen reps across the aisle throughout my career, uh, some of them who were great friends of mine, others that wouldn't even make eye contact with me. Uh, what's the right interaction look like to you with that rep across the hall putting up implants that compete with you? You know, I always go in to anybody that I see. I introduce myself because I feel like I have something to learn from them. I can learn something from everyone. The surgeon I work for, his, his whole deal, a screw's a screw. 
right? You can only dress it up so much. It's still going to be a screw. Everybody has basically the same products with the exception of a couple. They're basically the same products. And what we need to do with one another is, is learn to work towards the common goal and not worry about, you know, well, my product's better. My product's better. When it comes to our peers, we should, we should be able to get along with everyone that comes into the hospital and, and, you know, are you going to bring some value to them? Why, why not? Working alongside someone, that, there's a lot of pride in that. Everybody that I see, I, I want to call them friend. I don't, I don't want to look down on them just because they have something that I do. I want to know, I want to know about what they have. I want to learn something every day from somebody new. You know, you said something to me earlier when we talked that, that really inspired me is that if you're doing the right stuff on that peer level, the employee level, not only of the hospital, but of uh, the company we work for, you know, all those fronts, it does get back to the surgeon. Absolutely. The surgeons watch more than we think they watch. They pay attention more than we think they pay attention. You know, everything that we do from top to bottom will get back to them. They'll hear people talking about it or they'll see the interaction. One way or another, it's going to get back to them. How you've handled yourself through those times matters. When you said the word product, uh, that certainly flagged a thought in my mind uh, as we look at the wide aspect of the series. Just looking for opportunities out there, products that don't necessarily compete with our core offerings and, and things that might bring value. I was thinking about the spine area, and you have a really exciting product that you've been part of up there that I wanted the audience to know about. Tell us about it. Yeah, uh, so the product is uh, called Sagittae. It's Adcura Spine. Uh, you can visit our website. It's uh, Adcura Spine, A-D-C-U-R-A Spine.com. Okay. And as soon as you click on it, you'll see uh, the Sagittae implant there, but what Dr. Smith has done is he envisioned a product that would control its height and its lordosis independently of one another. And the big thing with this is right now we have a bunch of static pages. We have implants that adjust height, keep lordosis. We have implants that adjust lordosis, keep the height. There's, there's no two planes that will adjust inside of the disk space the way you want them to, the way you want it to manipulate. He can look down in the lateral procedure there and he can see the contact of the implant to the vertebral bodies. And that is huge. My spine angle, your spine angle are not going to be the same. Why should we have the same implant? Right. Um, it's going to treat us with breakdown of upper and lower levels after that fusion. And what this is, it's going to help to maintain that structure and our natural lordosis so that we can be better. Is there a drop down on the website for reps to, to click on if they want to add it to their bag and reach out to y'all regarding distribution? Absolutely. Uh, top right is contact us. You can click on it. You can email uh, info at adcurespine.com. Give us a call 952 400 0407. And even in the bottom, there's a place where it says, get in touch. You can put your name, uh, email address, and send us a message and let us know that you would like to be a distributor. 
um, you'd like to know more about our product, and we'll get that out to you. Skylar, great stuff, sir. Sage advice and exciting stuff on the device front going on up there in Gadsden, Alabama. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about it. Thank you for having me, Kevin. You know, one of the perks of being a podcast professional is that I get the privilege of listening to these conversations over and over before they go to air as part of the editing process. And this particular conversation with Scholar was very extra to me because every time I listen to it, I got something else out of it. So I strongly encourage you, go back and listen to it one more time and see if you don't have the same experience I did. Just some really profound stuff, and the guy is just doing a great job. I'm going to look for an excuse to get him on the air again sometime as I really enjoyed bringing his story to you. I really enjoyed the whole process of bringing our next guest story to the Device Nation audience. Dr. Sean McMillan, just doing some awesome stuff in the sports world, shoulder world, upper extremity, and just a really cool cat. I've enjoyed following him on social media and am so excited to have him speaking directly to you on the show today. So a great big Device Nation welcome to Dr. Sean McMillan. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I'm excited to do this. Dr. McMillan, I'm so thankful to have you on Device Nation. I've heard so many great things about you and look forward to asking you about biologics, cryoneurolysis, ASC shoulder replacement, and my favorite subject, guitar. But first, let's go back to Ewing, New Jersey. What put you on the path to medicine? Yeah, so medicine's one of those things where I, I think I always knew I wanted to do it. Growing up, my, my mom, who, who's still with us, thank God, uh, but my mom had some medical issues growing up. And I remember going to doctor's appointments with her or just hearing her talk about things. I remember thinking, like, you know, I want to I wanna help my mom, right? And, and that's, you know, that's what a little kid says. And as I got older, I, I knew I wanted to go into medicine. And then I have a lot of sports. You and I were talking about sports offline before. But growing up as a Yankee fan in, in North Jersey, you know, Tommy John pitched for the Yankees. And you hear about this you know, great Tommy John surgery and, you know, yada, 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 saved his career and helps many other major leaguers. So you start blending, you know, your loves, which are, you know, your family. And in that case, that drew me to medicine and then obviously sports. And I said, you know what, I, I think I can I think I can do this and, and I could do it in a way where I'm able to go to work every day and do what I love, which is be around sports, you know, help people that like to play sports and then also, you know, pursue a career in medicine to help others. You would go on to the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. Any any steering winds that directed you to the DO route? Yeah. So again, going back to you know my mom, like, like I said earlier, a lot of her doctors growing up were actually DOs. Her cardiologist was an osteopathic physician. She had other physicians as well that were osteopathic. And and then you know just getting to know people as I you know you start shadowing and rotating with people. You know, just sort of dumb luck and connections. And to be very fair, you know, as I went through college and stuff, you know, I, I really didn't understand the difference between the two. But I realized my personality seemed to jive a little more with some of the DO physicians that I had met. And then I started getting to talk to the, the one cardiologist that I shadowed for a while. Uh, he told me he went to the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. And I've always wanted to live in uh, a city, you know, Philadelphia. So I was going to college at the time at College of New Jersey. To be fair, you know, you, I started out doing a biomedical science master's program right out of uh, college because I wasn't quite sure that I was cut out for med school. I wanted to make sure that I could do it. And then, you know, halfway through the biomedical science program, the master's program, I said, you know what, this is it. This is exactly what I want to be doing. And I, I can hack it. And I was able to be accepted uh, straight into the med school program for the following year. And sort of the rest is history. 
Orthopedic Residency and a Sports Medicine Fellowship at UMass. What was it like working with Dr. Bisconi? Brian Bisconi is the most high-energy person I've ever met in my life. Uh, and anyone who has seen or attended the Orthopedic Summit meeting, uh, Kevin Plancher's meeting, Brian uh, uh, is the, the co-chairman of that meeting and runs around. And I, I swear sometimes he's Houdini because he's in three or four places at once. But he, he's just a fantastic human being. He looks at each one of us fellows as, as family. And, and to this day, we still have meetings three times a year. We'll get together at, at various things. We'll, we'll go to spring training together with the Red Sox and, and help uh, do physicals. We'll go back to Orthopedic Summit um, in, in Vegas. And then we, we run a course up in Saratoga, New York, the weekend of the Travers every year, the end of August. And each one of those meetings, you're going to have anywhere from 10 to 15 alumni that are attending, plus his new fellows, plus uh, I work with residents, we'll bring residents and it's just a really great experience to get together to to run difficult cases by one another to be able to sort of you know talk about our families talk about you know where our careers might take us it's just a really nice organization to be a part of it and Brian helped cultivate that along with his uh, his colleagues up there and I'll be forever grateful to Dr. Bisconi and and UMass for for taking a flyer on me uh, coming out of residency because I think when I graduated residency I, I was I was a good resident and Dr. Bisconi and his group uh, taught us how to be great doctors. Uh, and I think uh, if I didn't go there, I don't know where, I, where I'd be today. Well, awesome stuff. Fast forward 10 years later, Chief of Orthopedics and Director of Orthopedic Sports Medicine at Lord's Medical Center in Burlington, New Jersey. What's your practice look like these days? Yeah, so I'm hospital employed. I work for a great health system, a virtual health system uh, here in South Jersey. It's a really neat sort of hospital employed gig. Um, I'm busier than I ever thought I would be. I have uh, great colleagues. I have a, a hand partner. I have a joint partner. Uh, I have a couple non-op partners, you know, pain management, the whole gamut. And I've got three fantastic PAs that sort of keep me afloat and help funnel things to me. So the best part of our, our gig is we take care of the military. So the Joint Base McGuire Air Force Base in Fort Dix is uh, right down the street from us. So a large part of my, my practice, particularly in the Burlington office, is military. Kevin, if you, if you ever had a chance to take care of the military, they are the best population on the planet because they all want to get better. They have a rooting interest in getting better. They have a rooting interest in getting better on time, if not ahead of schedule. And they will follow everything I ask them to do to a T. And it, it really makes me look like a better doctor than I am because, you know, the outcomes are, are so much better in that healthy group of subset of patients. And then in addition to that, we, we have the privilege of taking care of about five or six high schools in the area as well. So it really is all I could ever ask for. And it's keeping me busy, keeping me sort of uh, on the cutting edge. And that's sort of you know what we're doing tonight is talking about what's on the cutting edge to help our patients stay ahead of the curve. Well, you do a lot of procedures. If you were on a deserted island, don't you love questions to start out like that? If you were on a deserted island <laughs> and you could only do one operation from here on out, which one would it be? My favorite surgery by far is a bank art repair. I love labor repairs, bank art repairs in particular. There's just something about it. If, if, if you're lucky enough to, to do it right uh, and have the right patient that, that follows the protocol, they all get better. And it's something where you're constantly trying to tweak and improve and, and do little things. No bank art repair is ever the same. Each one's just a little bit different, uh, which I enjoy. Uh, it's something that's a little different than, say, an ACL where it's uh, very rote in many ways. Right. Uh, but I, I think a labor repair for shoulder instability, if, if you can do that right and give them back that, that stability, they come in and they know there's something different. You know, When you see them on a the one-week follow-up, they just know something's different in that shoulder already. 
So that's my favorite procedure. Well, congratulations, by the way, on the Distinguished Arthroscopic Leader Award from the AANA. Tell us about the organization. Yeah, so uh, the Arthroscopy Association of North America, ANA, is, is really you know, one of the most preeminent organizations uh, for arthroscopy in the world. I got lucky enough to be involved with it uh, going back as a resident. Uh, one of my uh, residency directors was Dr. Nick Scaglione out of the North Shore Health System at the time in Long Island. And he, uh, former past president now, really showed us you know, what you can do by being involved with an organization that has a focus on, on education and learning and teaching. So fast forward 10 years, I've, I've been involved now in, in various capacities, and I was lucky enough to be awarded with the Distinguished Arthroscopic Leader Award, which uh, has uh, had the initials DAL at the time. They've now changed it to uh, FAANA uh, for Fellow of the Arthroscopy Association of North America. It's a recognition that's conferred on a small percentage of ANA members. Uh, it's based on professionalism, educational goals, scholarly qualifications, and just a dedication to improving you know, the field that we, we all care so passionately about. I've been in a lot of cases over the years that were arthroscopic in nature, and I've always wanted to ask somebody this, and you're it. How long does it take to really get your hands in sync with the instruments and have your arms around where you are in space doing a scope? God, I remember my first year out in practice, you know, struggling to, to no end. You know, you're in fellowship, you, when you graduate, you, you think, you know, you're hot stuff. And you, know, you could walk into a new hospital and you know, you're going to do that bank art repair. And next thing you know, it takes three hours. You're like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm horrific. And, and I remember going back and, and watching videos. Uh, Dr. Bisconi used to record many of the surgeries. So I'm watching the videos, trying to figure out you know, what I did wrong. It's almost like breaking down game film on a Monday after a football game. And then eventually it just starts to click. So I don't know if there's a number, if there's a time. It, it's certainly, you know, in my case, it felt like it, it took more than six months, seven months to start getting the left hand to know what the right hand was doing. Right. Uh, and I can tell you, I, I still think I'm improving in, in many ways and in, in learning. And every time I think I'm you know, really good at something, you have one of those humbling cases that just reminds you that, you know, if, if you were perfect, you wouldn't be doing this. Right. So um, I, I think it's a, it's a continual thing. But that first year was probably the most uh, exciting and also humbling that I've ever experienced. In 1931, Dr. Michael Berman performed the first hip arthroscopy 90 years later, What's going on with this procedure now, and, and where do you see it going? I love hip arthroscopy. Hip, hip arthroscopy, again, very much like Bancard, is one of you know, my favorite procedures because if you do it on the right patient, and that's something we're all still learning on, who's the right patient, you can make a big difference in their life. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough to spend a couple courses early on uh, down in Nashville. Uh, I got to spend some time watching Dr. Bird teach us at these courses that were sponsored by industry. You know, really the, the ins and outs of hip arthroscopy. And then in fellowship, Dr. Visconti um, had a really big niche in hip arthroscopy. So we spent a lot of time doing hip scopes every Friday over at the old uh, Memorial Hospital. I, I think it's something where it's going to continue to to progress. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, biologics uh, in hip arthroscopy, uh, whether it's for cartilage, whether it's for uh, labral reconstruction. But I think it, it's still infantile. And if you look at some of the numbers, it's gone up almost like 500 percent in the last decade as far as number of cases if you go back to when I graduated, I remember sitting in a fellows room and they said, raise your hand if you were in hip arthroscopy in your fellowship. And I think it was myself and maybe my co-fellow, wow. you know, two of the only three that raised our hands. And, you know, fast forward now, I have the privilege of teaching at a lot of these courses and more than half the room is raising their hand. It's, it's actually the opposite. So I think there's a lot more awareness of, of the pathology that, um, that we're seeing and addressing. 
And I think we're, because of that, we're seeing less and less uh, sort of bad outcomes. How much distraction can you dial in on one of these procedures? I know that has to be key at some level to see what's going on. I've always been curious. How much yeah. can you can you pull that joint apart before you worry about popping the ligamentum? That's a great question. So uh, I'll tell you, my, my technique has changed a lot. I, I, I trained in Long Island. And as a resident, uh, one of the uh, guys that was doing hip arthroscopy, one of the surgeons, right out of fellowship, big, strong, muscular guy, great guy. But he would pull on this thing like he was trying to rip a bear apart. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, what, what is he doing? I, I'll tell you truthfully, right now, when, when I when I do this, I pull the patient out to just manual uh, tension. I, I, half the time, I use a postless system at my surgery center. The other half, I use a post. So it's sort of split 50-50. I pull them out just to manual tension as, as much as I can pull, you know, distracting with one arm and just sort of leave them there. And when you take the x-ray, the hip's never distracted. But then I'll go ahead and once I'm prepped, I'll just take the spinal needle and, and pop the capsule, let the air out so you break that suction seal. And then you can distract them pretty easy. So it's not much more than 25 pounds or so of, of, of distraction on that, which I know in the past, you know, we were pulling 50, 75 pounds. Uh, but because of that, we're not seeing the nerve palsies. We're not seeing the complications with the ligamentum. And I think patients are a lot happier and having less post-operative pain. You mentioned Dr. Bird. I've seen his name associated with you over the years. I believe he was past president of the International Society for Hip Arthroscopy. What kind of impact has he had on you? So he was someone that, you know, again, growing up, you know, you, you heard his name a lot, right? And then, you know, I still remember the first time I got to, to meet him. I attended one of his courses um, as, as a fellow. And first of all, he, he's just a very large individual. He's very tall. So yeah, I, I see the guy and you know, Kevin, my, my photo makes me look much bigger than I really am. But at 5'5", five, five, and that's with good shoes on, you know, he, he's a daunting person both uh, in, in name as well as in, in stature. But spending the day with him and, you know, hearing that Southern drawl, the way he sort of talks, the calm, I don't think his pulse ever goes above 30. He's just always in control. And I remember thinking to myself, like, that's the person you want to learn from. That's the person you want to aspire to be. I mean, this is a, a gentleman who basically – I know you said the first hip arthroscopy was 1931, but he basically took something that was there and revolutionized it. And I, I think that's something that it can't be understated. So, you know, I think a lot of what he says and sort of process it and see, you know, where does that apply to my practice? Let's talk about arthroscopy in the office for a minute. So I've been hearing a lot about diagnostic needle scoping. Does it have a place in your practice? Any any thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I love it. I've been part of needle scar, uh, excuse me, um, diagnostic needle arthroscopy probably for the last five or six years now. I, I've worked uh, in industry, worked with Trice Medical, uh, also you know tried other ones as well. It's a door that's opening slowly, but it's a door that's going to get kicked open at some point because we're very much in an in information age right now, right? Patients can get their results online from their MRIs in two seconds, right? And then they're calling the office. They want to know right away, what does this mean? I want to book my surgery, you know, yada, yada, yada. Patients, same way, they come in the office, their knee hurts. They want to know what's going on now. They don't want to wait three, three, four days for an MRI or authorization. So we've been able to help countless patients on the spot really figure out what's going on in their knee or their shoulder, um, sort of lay out a plan for them right away. It takes a lot of fear out. It takes a lot of stress out. It doesn't hurt. It's actually cheaper than an MRI in almost all instances, which is really cost beneficial for the patient. And I've had the privilege uh, during COVID when we had to get a little creative of actually doing some in-office surgeries uh, where we did meniscectomies, and those patients did fantastic. And I think that sort of opened my eyes to, you know, where's the next frontier? I, I think we'll be doing procedures, uh, not just diagnostic, but, you know, treatment procedures, you know, in the office 
very soon. Uh, I think if, if the reimbursement side works out and we can sort of nail down the, the niche, I, I know that's something where I want my practice to go. And it's not that far-fetched when you think about it, Kevin. I mean, you get a root canal, which is pretty invasive when you think about what they're doing in the office. They're doing wide-awake carpal tunnels in the office, in the procedure rooms. You know, we're doing epidural injections sometimes. So I think it's just sort of the next frontier of, of where we're going. And that's really going to change things. I mean, imagine you're playing ball with your, your kid. You know, you, you twist your knee, you go to the sprains and strains clinic. Not only do they do the x-ray, but now they can you know, look inside your knee, see the meniscal tear and, and address it on the spot. That's, that's everything you want. That's a home run. That saves uh, you know, health for cost systems, for the insurance companies. If you do a needle scope, I, I, I firmly believe that the quad muscle doesn't shut down as much because you're not pumping as much fluid into the knee. So there's potentially a need for less rehab afterwards and physical therapy. So I think there's so many avenues to go with this. And I know the colleagues of mine that are on board with this as well see that. And it'll be coming, Kev. If you and I do one of these again in a, in a couple of years, I think we'll be talking about the, you know, the p- patients we're helping in the office now with this. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. I remember showing Ayavera around when it first came out. Got a lot of blank stares. <laughs> and people were like, I, I don't know about that. But I'm seeing more and more adoption of this technology. What are your thoughts on it? You know, cryoneurolysis is pretty smart. You know what I mean? At the, at the, at the end of the day, Freezing a nerve, take away pain, and doing it in a way that's not going to have a downstream effect, a negative effect, like a neuroma, some sort of rebound, hypersensitivity, it's kind of a home run. I remember the first time it was shown to me, again, I had to go back to my Netter book, uh, my anatomy book, and look at the, the anatomy of the nerves that we were affecting and go, oh, yeah, we, I guess we can get those nerves and, and treat them. And believe it or not, my first patient wasn't a, a total knee patient. Buddy of mine, Scott Sigmund, you know, you know Scott, yeah. everyone knows so you can follow the fro hashtag. Follow yes, the fro. gotta follow the fro. Um, so he was doing Iovera, probably one of the first people I knew doing it. I was randomly teaching a lab uh, up in Massachusetts. The girl running the X-ray machine uh, at the company just asked me about her knee. She had an ACL hamstring done uh, about two years ago by a well-known surgeon. Did a great job, but she had persistent pain along the medial side of her knee, right where the, the graft was harvested from. She had irritation of the infrapatellar branch of the saphenous nerve. You know, I said to her, look, I have no idea this is going to work or not, but my buddy is right down the road up, up in Lowell. Why don't you go see him? So I coordinate the two of them. He did an Iovera treatment on her. The girl loved it, ended up doing some sort of testimony for, for him on his website. To me, I was sold after that. So we started doing this on our patients undergoing total knees before surgery to cut down on the need for opioids. I do believe in opioid sparing surgery as much as possible. We're doing it on some of our ACLs ahead of time as well. Because, again, if I can keep a 16 or 17-year-old kid opioid naive, that, that's a grand slam in my book. So I, I think that there's a role, and it's reversible. It's going to wear off in 90 days. You know, when we think about all the options we can give our patients, whether it's medications, whether it's, you know, this or that, sometimes the simplest thing you can do is just avoid the pain ahead of time. And I think that's a great way to do it. I wonder if that technology might go hand in hand with what you're talking about uh, down the road, introducing more of these cases that historically have been ASC and pushing them into the office setting. I do think there's going to be some sort of synergy there. I mean, look, at the end of the day, reimbursements are getting cut. Patients don't have time to be down. Uh, how many patients have you know we seen since COVID sort of, and again, COVID's obviously still going on, but since COVID restrictions were eased up a little bit, many patients burned all their, their, their sick leave. And, and now yeah. they're coming in with you know, meniscal tears or you know, you know, needs for other things, total knees. 
and they can't get the procedure done this side of the, the new year because they burned all their time. So I'm doing aloe vera in some instances on those patients, just buying them time, letting them work because they have to make money. But, you know, we're keeping the pain down for them so that they're not crunching, you know, 10 Vicodins a day to, to get through. They're getting by with physical therapy. They're getting by with cryoneurolysis. And I think that those are things that are going to help patients. And we're going to see a paradigm shift, I think. Speaking of pain, bone marrow lesions, I've sold my share of products in this space. What's, what's in your armamentarium for this pathology? So I started out using uh, the classic subchondroplasty, and I had some great results with that. We, we published a couple of papers on that, and I, I think that subchondroplasty is, is still one of the, the gold standards for that, where, where basically you're injecting a calcium phosphate into the bone and providing relief. I've shifted in the past probably year, uh, year and a half, uh, using a, a different formulation with hyaluronic acid, the tactoset, but same principle, again, injecting some sort of calcium uh, phosphate into the bone to provide some sort of scaffolding to allow the body the chance to remodel. I think that's sort of the key. I, I do think there's roles as well for using bone marrow aspirate uh, into the bone. When you get down to the science of it, it's really fascinating because I think you can see three bone marrow lesions uh, in your office in a row, Kevin. Yeah. And if you actually go through each one of the patients, look at their comorbidities, look at their goals, look at their age, look at their mechanism of injury, you might find that you need three different treatment algorithms for them. But I, I think first it's recognition of, of the pathology. Then I think it's deciding, you know, which one of those products is best for your patient. And I can tell you, none of them are wrong. It's just a matter of understanding the right fit for the right patient. I read a case okay. report recently regarding a bioactive implant, Regenitin, and you had implanted it in an active duty Air Force member for patella tendinopathy. Tell us about the technology and how's he doing? He's doing great. I actually see him for other things now, and it's always a good sign. You know, you always get nervous when you see you know, the patient's uh, n- name on your schedule for that day. You're like, oh, God, it's right. coming back to the- today. But when he comes in for something unrelated and you have to ask him, you know, how's the knee? And he pauses for a second because he forgot about it. Like that, that's the home run in anyone's book as a surgeon. Sure. But yeah, I mean, they're probably almost three years out now, probably two and a half, three years out now, to be honest, and, and still no issues. And I can tell you that many of my colleagues and many people are just using the bioinductive implant on Achilles tendons, on patella tendons, not just the rotator cuff, because, you know, the, the theory is the same. If you can decrease the stress strain across the tendon and load share it early on, so you're not decreased. It has no mechanical strength. But if you're able to add bulk to the rotator cuff or the tendon right away and allow for induction of new tissue to grow, that, that's all we're trying to do is just buy some time. I used to give the example uh, when I was explaining to my, my residents about the Regenitin. Um, if I cut your arm and you got a scab, right, I would say to them, what happens if you keep picking at it? Well, it doesn't heal. So what happens if you just leave it alone? You put a Band-Aid over it. Well, it heals over time. And I think that the idea behind the Regenitan, at least in my book, is if you can put something on there that's going to just, you know, lay down some, you know, some air cover, uh, so to speak, for the, the, the tendon to heal, it, it's going to do its thing. Because we, long before there were surgeons, you know, you go back 2,000, you know, 5,000 years in history of time, people had injuries and, and people heal. Uh, so I think it's a matter of letting the body optimize its chance for healing. Rotator cuff continues to be a, a feast or famine procedure. What do you think are the ABCs of a reproducible repair? I think the first thing is really understanding what you're getting into uh, before you get to the operating room. So you know, taking the time, look at the MRI ahead of time, knowing is there fatty atrophy, 
Is the tendon retracted? You know, did they have a previous failure? All those things, you know, need to be laid out before you even get to the operating room because they're going to help decide, do you need some sort of augmentation? Do you need a different anchor? You know, what is it you're going to be doing? And then, you know, once you're in there, it's recognition of, of the tissue quality. You know, is this good tissue or is this bad tissue? I don't care if you're the best surgeon in the world. If you have someone with bad protoplasm, they have bad tissue, they're a smoker or, you know, they're overweight, whatever it might be, diabetic. It doesn't matter how many sutures you put in there. It, it, there's a good chance it's going to fail and the literature bears that out. So I, I think that's where we've been starting to get a little more, I don't say the word cute, but a little more scientific with realizing that, you know, it's not about us as the surgeons. It's not about the implants. It's about finding the right match, almost like a Rubik's cube for saying, right. this is my patient. This is their pathology. This is their risk of failure. What do I have in my bag today that I can use to sort of change that story? And I think that's where we're seeing a lot more good outcomes because we have so many biologic options. You mentioned Regenitin. There's dermal grafting. There's, uh, you know, again, from an industry side of view, there's other ways to put dermal grafting in now, Dermis on Demand. I had a, the opportunity to write a paper for um, Ira Kirschenbaum's journal, uh, and I, that should be coming out soon on BioRes, uh, which is a biobrace. It's a biocomposite, bioinductive graft. So you're melding strength with uh, bioinduction. Uh, for the first time in an implant to allow the sutures not to rip through, but also let the tissue regenerate. There's so many ways to go with this, Kevin, and that's the exciting part because our outcomes are just going to get better. Does orthobiologics play any role in what you're doing on the shoulder? Y- yes and no. So, I mean, I, I firmly believe in orthobiologics and, you know, again, having, you know, s- sit down with in a room with people that actually really understand it. Uh, Don Buford uh, is a colleague of mine and I, I worked with him with Trice Medical and other endeavors. And just hearing him speak for 15 minutes, you know, really lets you know that, you know, as much as you think, you know, you only know the tip. Uh, but I, I do believe that there's a role for orthobiologics. I don't necessarily put uh, a PRP or a bone marrow aspirate injection in on my rotator cuffs, but I do like to use biology with my rotator cuffs. Again, I mentioned those implants before, their genitin, biobrace, whatever it might be. I believe in decorticating the bone really well to get some of that bone marrow that's there. I'll use K-wires to uh, do marrow venting on my greater tuberosity to get some more of that bone marrow to seep out. So that there is biology in that per se, but I'm not doing a, a bone marrow aspirate spin down, for instance, right. or a PRP clot yet. Uh, although the literature says it's good, I just haven't incorporated that into my practice. I wanted to ask you about a ladder J procedure. I've been in one of those in my entire career. What are your thoughts on it? Why would you book this case and do it many, open? What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah so the, the, the ladder J is, is by far one of the most elegant surgeries I think you, you can do. I did one on Friday with uh, one of my residents, uh, and, and the guy who's a, or just a brilliant resident looks at me and, and says, you know, this is the most anatomy I've seen on any any surgery. <laughs> wow! Because you're staring at so many tendons, so many uh, you know nerves, arteries. It's just a really elegant and beautiful procedure, and it's something that I think I'm you know as many as I do a year, where I'm still improving on. I've fooled around with arthroscopic attempts. I've uh, colleagues of mine uh, that are masters at it, I would say, um, and it's just something that I, I haven't uh, taken the time to really master. So my my go to is still an open procedure. But for me, Kev, this is for people that have significant bone loss off their glenoid. These are people that have failed previous uh, instability procedures, whether it's a bank card or, or something else along the line. And, and for me, contact athletes, my military, for instance, you know, high risk people. You know, the, the literature is pretty clear. These 
you know, have a complication rate like anything else, but is much lower than the soft tissue repairs of our bank carts. So um, I, I think there's something to it. And in the right hands, it goes really, really smooth and there's a much quicker recovery. Awesome. Does a stemless shoulder make any sense to you? I've seen it. I, I've used it. My preference, and you know, again, in my practice, I probably do somewhere between 80 and 90 shoulder replacements a year. Uh, so I think it's, it's a good number, although I wouldn't say that I'm uh, the world's leader in shoulder replacement. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a good option, particularly in my hands. I'm doing it in my younger patients, people that have to get a replacement because they have no other option left. But I, I know they're going to get revised down the road. There's just no way around it. 15, 20 years from now, they'll need something. So I'm doing it on, on those patients right now. They all go well. So really the hesitation to, to move into it full time is just a matter of the, the, the company I prefer to use right now doesn't have an option for that at the moment, although it, apparently it's coming very soon. But I, I think there's nothing wrong with it and it has really good outcomes to date. Any thoughts on shoulder replacement in an ASC? Oh, love doing it. It's, it's, it's a great procedure. I mean, going back to innovation and science, you know, once we started getting really good, and I say we, I mean, my anesthesiologists, we started getting really good at using ultrasound guided interscanning blocks. And in my AACs and my hospitals, we use um, liposomal Vivacaine or, or Expiro. But once they got good at doing those interscanning blocks, there's no pain. I mean, it's, it's the same pain as the shoulder scope. And, and we've gotten so good with blood loss management that really, you know, every shoulder, uh, every shoulder replacement that I do, I try to do in the ASC, provided, you know, the insurance allows it. And I think it's been a game changer. Patients are going home quicker. Patients are happier. They're, they're not stuck in the hospital. No one wants to go to the hospital nowadays, you know, because of just the fear of being around there with, with the, you know, COVID, et cetera. So yeah, I, I love doing an ASC shoulder replacement. The ASCs love it. It's just a really nice experience. And unlike a total knee where I need to get them up and get them walking and you know, make sure they're okay before they can go home for an outpatient joint. You know, shoulders just go home in a sling and they're comfortable. And then we have our standard post-op check as, as scheduled. So that, that's a home run in my book. Got to shift gears for a second to one of my favorite subjects, hockey. Widely considered the greatest high school hockey game of all time, the 1996 semifinals, Apple Valley and Duluth East. I know you're a hockey fan. Would the <laughs> would the third overtime been a good moment to bring both teams in a locker room for a talk about overuse injuries? <laughs> that, that, that may have been it yes <laughs> that's awesome I, I know you've talked about overuse injuries in uh some of the literature i found any thoughts on that yeah overuse injuries and we see it all the time and it's it's one of the most frustrating things and and yet you know as a dad of, of twins i have nine-year-old twins a boy and a girl and they're getting into their sports now right and you know, I understand there's need for practice and games. We all grew up playing, you know, all, all of us, Kevin, you did, I did, you know, playing all, all day and night, but we played every sport. And I think the overuse injuries now tends to come more in the uh, specialization. You know, as, how many times have I seen a, a really nice kid that comes in with elbow pain or shoulder pain? And as you're talking to, you know, him and his parents, he's playing or for five or six, you know, teams plus a travel team plus, you know, this and that, he's a pitcher and a catcher, or he's a pitcher and a third baseman yeah. where he's throwing the ball the longest. Those are the problems and we're seeing them more and more and it's not helping. And I can tell you many of us uh, have gone out of our way to sort of give lectures in the community to try and, you know, dissuade kids from, from doing this. And it's an uphill battle because there's so much money involved with this, with these travel teams and, and rec teams. But it's, it's something that we need to continue to bring awareness to. Irish American Orthopedic Society and now fellow of Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. Tell me about it. 
Yeah, you know, I met the right guy in the right bar in Ireland one day. And the, the rest is history. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, but no, this was, again, one of the coolest things in, in medicine. A lot of it is just, you know, dumb luck, right? A couple of years ago, I was contacted about giving a lecture on Regenitent at a uh, conference, orthopedic conference over in Ireland. And Scott Sigmund, again, you know, one of my buddies that we run in the same circles, he was going. Uh, he was going to give a talk and we kind of, you know, got on the phone and said, hey, let's, let's go to Ireland. So we went, uh, myself, him, and another colleague of ours, uh, Alejandro Badia, uh, down in Miami. Uh, we went, we, we gave some some lectures. We had a great time, made some great friends that we still have to this day. On on the last day of the uh, of the event, we had uh, this reception, and uh, th- they announced at the end that the three of us, as, as well as another doctor uh, who had come over, are being asked to join the Royal College of Surgeons as honorary faculty. So we, you know, we thought it was great, didn't really understand it. And then next thing you know, we get this invitation to go back to Trinity and, and walk at graduation with the people graduating from, from medical school. So um, my Scott uh, and his family, uh, myself, I, I took about 14 family members over, went to Ireland for the, for the week. I, they got to see me walk uh, down uh, the hall at Trinity, get my diploma, really had a great experience. And uh, still involved, still get to do things, uh, attend uh, courses virtually right now via Zoom. Uh, they're getting some of their meetings back up and going. And I'm sure I'll, I'll go back to Ireland or some of the other places they had these meetings at. But, uh, yeah, just one of those really small world things that was really, really cool. So uh, I'll cherish that one forever. I've always wanted to visit. Is it beautiful? Oh, it was great. Oh, everything was great. And as cool as Dublin is, the second you got outside the uh, the city, it was it was fantastic. We, we hired this uh, old, old retired gentleman by the name of Owen who basically drove around a party bus and he had my, my my parents me my family on there he took us all over Ireland for a week city by city you know gave us narrating tours the whole way and my god it was probably the coolest experience Kevin honorary commandership U.S. Air Force I gotta ask you about that so yeah like, again I mentioned I, I have the, the honor and privilege of taking care of the, the military you know right over here uh, I am civilian I'm not uh, you know officially military at all but uh, I was asked a few years ago uh, about applying for an honorary commandership at the 87th Medical. And uh, I did. I applied for it. I, I was awarded it. I just completed my uh, fourth term, which is the max you can do. So next year I'll be an honorary commander emeritus. So basically I'll be a, a lifetime member of this now. And the program is really neat. They select different leaders from around the community that are involved with the base in some way, shape or form. It doesn't have to be medicine. It could be you know, banking, financial, it could be, you know, you name it. And then we get to spend time on, on base working with, uh, you know, different crew members, uh, air members, really taking part in things. Like I got to do a boot camp a couple of years ago. They do a one-day boot, boot camp simulation. And I can tell you, Kevin, I was never the same after that. I didn't walk right for about three weeks. Wow. Uh, clearly, I wasn't as good a shape as I thought I was. But uh, just the overall experience was really, really neat. And I think it just brings the community and, and you know, the military together closer. And again, you got to remember a lot of these, you know, you know, people that are part of the military, they're, they're young kids and, and they're away from home. You know, they're, they're nowhere near, you know, where they're from. And it's, it's fascinating to hear their stories and their perspective and, you know, just sort of form a relationship. So being an honorary commander at, at uh, the Fort Dix and 87th Medical has been a real privilege for me. Well, another honor that you've been on the receiving end of is consistently winning these top doc awards in your area for years. And I was just wondering, do you have any advice for surgeons looking at these 
types of honorariums in the community and and how do you how do you make that happen how do you get put into those magazines and put up front as saying hey here's a top doc what what's the strategy yeah, yeah I, I, it's it's my patients right my, my patients are great so I, I thank them they're the ones who picked me but I, I think there's something about just being human you know if, if I could say one thing that I learned from going to doctor's appointments with with my mom you know a lot growing up was the doctors that were just human, they, they took the time to actually make sure that, you know, my, my mom and, or in this case, my patients understood what was really going on. It matters. You know, I draw pictures. I, I use really normal, simplistic terms and analogies that everyone gets. I make sure that they don't have any other questions. I make sure I'm reachable. So, again, I have my website. I have my Twitter. I have my, my work Facebook. And patients will message me all the time if you wanted to, you know, to, to reach out. If I operate on you, I put my cell phone number on the on the back page of the discharge instructions, and I tell them something comes up, just call me directly. And I'll tell you, in, in ten years, I've had maybe two people abuse that. No one, no one does. If anything, you'll see me in the office the following week, and you know they'll tell you, you know, maybe something you know didn't go right, and I'll say, why didn't you call? And they're like, well, I don't want to bother you, right? Which is the exact opposite of you know what you're trying to do. But there's a, a bit of a respect there. So I, I think just being human and and relating to patients is probably the best way to sort of achieve that. I saw that you did a podcast about AI for fighting the opioid epidemic and providing better outcomes to patients. What was that all about? We talk about pushing the envelope for technology. I mean, artificial intelligence is used everywhere. You know, look at you. If you go and you say something next to your Alexa, next thing you know, you're getting an ad on your phone, you know, asking if you want to buy whatever it was you're talking about, right? So data aggregation and artificial intelligence and, and the ability to extrapolate and predict outcomes is huge. And I, I was able to link up with this company, Avalon AI, to some colleagues that really do some groundbreaking sort of AI work uh, with opioids, with surgery center outcomes, you know, patients, you know, who's high risk for developing an infection, who's high risk for having pain afterwards or stiffness, whatever it might be. And if we can sort of really plug this into an algorithm, you know, we're going to know ahead of time what's the best patient to operate on. And as much as it might be a slam dunk to say, Mrs. Jones, you have a rotator cuff, we're going to fix you. You know, you might plug Mrs. Jones information into that, that, you know, that algorithm and say, you know what, you're high risk for some things here. Let's tweak a couple of these, you know, these algorithms. Maybe we got to hold your therapy for six weeks or maybe we got to speed you up a little bit. Try different medications, different trials of medications with opioids ahead of time to find the right one that works. You know, these are all things that, you know, the intelligence is there. It's a matter of how we're going to use it. I was in a case this morning, a lot of instruments involved, and I understand you can play three of them, drums, piano, and guitar. How did all that come about? So, <laughs> when I was a kid, I wanted a drum set, Kev, right. in the worst way. And, and, and my mom, you know, my, my mom's being mom, said no, right? Like, I'm not playing drums. That's loud. Play the piano. They said, you know, that, that's what you're supposed to do. So I basically made a deal. I said, look, if, if I learned how to play the piano, we never actually agreed on how good I had to play it. But if I learned how to play the piano, can I get a drum set? So the answer was yes. So long and short, my sister taught me enough how to play the piano where I could hold my own. And then I got my drum set. And I played that all the way up through through college, played in a couple you know, you know small bands. And you know when I went to medical school, moved into a, a city in Philadelphia, I couldn't bring my drum set with me for the first time. I mean, those drums even came to college with me, Kev. So I was like, what am I going to do with myself? I needed some sort of musical outlet. So I went out, bought a guitar and just, you know, sort of learned how to play, bought some books. And then, you know, from there, just the rest became history. You, you pick up a, a ukulele, you pick up a, 
harmonica and next thing you know you're a, a one-man walking you know band uh but it's it's something that i still love to do after a, you know a long day or a hard day come home and you just sort of you know you have that outlet when, when you need it yeah i remember those books uh gosh what was it mel bay you know how to play the guitar i just never had the discipline for it i was like okay just put on a Ted Nugent album and just try to figure it out. <laughs> so, that's bad. Do the letters WWE mean anything to you, Doctor? If you mean they're everything, then then sure. I mean, WWE was, again, my, my first start it, it, until about maybe five years ago. I thought it was real. So let's yeah. let's be very clear, Kev. But um, you, you talked about relatability with patients. In, in my OR, you know, everyone has their own little, you know, their own little thing in their operating rooms. But um, I actually have a WWE championship belt that hangs in, in the back of uh, my one operating room. Oh, that's uh, awesome. So, so that that's there. My scrub caps are usually WWE themed. I have a Hulkamania one. I have a Macho Man Randy Savage one. Uh, my, my mother makes all my scrub caps for me. So thank you, Mom. And then, you know, I, I wear white fishing boots in the OR for the arthroscopy. So it's certainly a, you know, a, a look when you come out. It looks like I'm ready to actually go into a ring and, and tackle someone. But um. Yeah, the WWE is 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 great. I still love it. I share that experience with my kids. They love wrestling. Um, and if you were to get my daughter out of bed right now and ask her, you know, the three most dangerous letters in the world, she'll tell you it's an RKO. So she, she, she certainly knows her stuff. <laughs> Ever been tempted to throw a chair at a rep? No, 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 no not not quite. But we, we we've gotten close. You know, I, I a couple elbows knock someone out here and there if they won't sit up. But <laughs> any advice to reps listening? I mean, you've you've had a few of them come through your OR. What makes a good rep working alongside you? You know, I have some great reps. Uh, you know, two of my reps are you know, you call me your friends. You know, you always got to be careful when you mix work and friends together. But they're just people that you would want to just get a beer with and hang out, you know, not even right. talk work, just talk, whatever, you know, great rep to me is someone who at the end of the day makes my day go better. So they're not just looking out for their implant and, and their case. They're making sure all the other cases are going. And, you know, if I'm doing eight or 10 cases in a day, they're almost like an expediter in a restaurant. They're making sure that everything else goes smooth. So that's I good. can get done on time and see my kids, they get home and see their kids. You know, that that's, that's the win. And they're following up ahead of time with, you know, behind the scenes stuff, you know, calling SPD, making sure a tray was turned over, you know, realizing that maybe uh, I'm in an ASC and I need a graft for something and it wasn't ordered. And they're taking care of it. Uh, all those little things, just making sure at the end of the day, there's, there's no infighting. You know, we're all adults. I, I don't need someone arguing over whose anchor I'm going to use. So I make sure ahead of time, everyone knows for that day, you know, what I'm using for what case. So it's never, I'm never wasting their time because I respect their time. And uh, likewise, they respect my time on the way back. So because of that, knock on wood, I've had the same two reps uh, for the majority of everything I do for the last 10 years. Any advice as we close up shop here to surgeons that are just starting out, getting out into this world and the current environment to just how to build a successful practice following with their patients? Yeah, I, 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 I touched on it before, but being accessible is probably the number one thing. I mean, I don't think you need to you know, give your cell phone out like everyone. I, I mentioned I do that, but that's just, you know, my thing. If I operate on them, I figure if I've operated on you, we, we're probably at that point where, you know, if you need to reach me, here, here it is. But be accessible you know, to the ER, to your primary care people. Don't ever turn away a patient. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've treated someone for, you know, I, I don't do backs, but they get into my my clinic because it looked like a hip at first to my, my scheduler. And, I, you know, I end up talking to them for 20 minutes about their back. And I know it's not going anywhere as far as, you know, a surgery and I'm going to end up referring them 
you know, to one of my colleagues. But, you know, just hearing someone out, we're still doctors, we still have knowledge. So I think doing that, it always pays off in spades. They come back for something else later on or they send their niece or nephew because you took the time to listen to them. I think that's important. Controlling your social media is, is paramount because everybody has a social media page now. So, again, control your content, make sure it's appropriate, make sure it's timely. And then obviously, you know, use it as an advantage to reach out to patients. And then don't be afraid to, to give a talk on something simple. It doesn't have to be surgical. Um, I remember when I first came out of a fellowship, I, I probably talked about supplementation about 20 times my first year. And I would, I'm telling you, Kev, sometimes I'd go and it would be two people in the back of a library. And I, and I spoke like I was at the academy in front of 2,000 people, right. you know, just right. talking about it. And again, it has nothing to do with surgery. I'm not getting anything out of it. But it, there's always that downstream, and and it's it's something where you got to put yourself out there, and over time it'll it'll pay off, and you know hopefully you're not doing this forever as far as you know giving those talks, but it really does make a difference early on. The last time we talked, you were hunkered down in the hospital because tornado was rolling through. I just wanted to see how you guys did. Everything turned out all right. Yeah, so I was lucky. My my, my town was actually hit. Uh, my side of town was okay. Unfortunately, the other side of town ha- had some damage, including, you know, some some loss of houses and stuff. But knock on wood, uh, you know, everyone's doing OK. You know, we, we, we talked about this. You know, I'm in Jersey. We don't get to, we don't get tornadoes. No. So w- when the alarm goes off, I think everyone had the same sort of uh, thought, which is like, yeah, whatever. And then, you know, before you do it, it actually came through and did some real damage. So if, if nothing else, it taught. I think all of us here, you know, to take it serious from now on, which, you know, it should be common sense, but the truth is, you know, it wasn't at the time. But, uh, you know, Mother Nature is undefeated for a reason. So, how can listeners reach out to you on social media? Where are you connected at? Twitter, you know, at Sports Doctor Sean is my handle. The LinkedIn page as well, Sean McMillan Do, and then a work Facebook. And then, you know, from there, the website's simple, right? And I think everyone should make their own website, create their own brand. I think that's important. So my website is www.drshawnmcmillan.com. Very, very simple. But all my rehab protocols are on there. So it drives physical therapists uh, to my website because every one of my therapy scripts has the website on it. So the therapists go to the website. They have to you know, pull the protocol down that I want them to use. But along the way, they're going to see cutting edge things that are up there. A, a talk I gave with a link to my most recent talk here or an article that was just published you know, there. And, you know, you know, an in-tune person will see those things and, you know, they might keep that in the back of their mind. So if they see a patient with a, an injury down the road, they might be like, hey, I know a doc who just wrote a paper on such and such. And I, I think that's important that we have those links that are out there. So those are just little things that I learned over time. And I think that they'll help other people as well. Dr. Matt Millen, yes. you've been doing an ESPN radio program for seven years Tell us about it. Is it just football or is it just sports across the board? And uh, it's got to be a lot of fun. Yeah, so it, it's it's called Football Stories, uh, the radio show. Uh, it's hosted by Al Thompson. It was like an, an ESPN-type radio show that has now morphed into more of a, a live stream radio show that's out there. And primarily we talk about football, you know, especially during football season. That's, that's, our, that's our thing. But we've gone through, you know, the Phillies. We've gone through baseball, the NBA. We talk about the Olympics. It's just a great forum every week to talk about local sports and national sports. And, uh, you know, the, the personalities on there just really care, which I, I think is really important because it gives me a forum to help my patients as well. And, and really, it's, it's banter back and forth, just like we're two guys in a bar. Can people go onto a website to, to hear you live on this? 
Yeah, so it, it's every Wednesday uh, from 7 to 7.15 Eastern Time. The handle is Football Stories, the radio show. You can search them online, YouTube, as well as uh, Facebook. Uh, so Football Stories, the radio show, and, and that's every Wednesday. Uh, my part is from 7 to 7.15 Eastern. Awesome. Well, Dr. McMillan, it's been an honor to speak with you and just hear about all the really cool things you got going on up there in Burlington, New Jersey. Uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, this has been uh, an experience. I've enjoyed your podcast. I've listened to several of them that you have, and I appreciate you, you giving me the chance to speak about what's passionate for me. Well, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I got to throw a few thanks out here. Number one, thank you, Dr. Sean McMillan, for coming on the show. What an inspiring person you are, and I really appreciate you sharing your life with me and my audience. Number two, I want to say thank you to Skylar, giving us words of wisdom on how to get in even deeper with those around us by just doing the right things. So thank you, Skylar, for taking time out of your life to share yours with us that we might get better at this thing. And lastly, I want to say a huge thank you to you, the listening audience. You inspire me to be better. I met so many of you out at AUKUS and was just humbled by the kind words that you shared with me about the show. Trust me, I have received far more than I have given back in this thing. And hopefully at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, giving back to you, the audience, that we can all do this job better next week than we're doing it now. It's still the best job on earth, and I am honored to do it alongside you. Wish you well this Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Hope you all drive away from your respective families and everybody's still talking to each other. It's a noble goal, right? And an achievable one. Thank you so much for being part of it all, and look forward to seeing you all next time.